I'd like to welcome Rowan up, who will be sharing with us today what God has laid upon his heart. Um, some of you might know Rowan from the Rondebosch congregation. Um, so Rowan is definitely not a stranger to us and definitely not a stranger to the pulpit, the imaginary pulpit over here. Do you guys see it? Um, so, oh, there we go. Thank you, Tim. So, Rowan, um, we'd like to welcome you, and we are waiting with expectant hearts to hear what God has in store for us and what God is saying to us through you. Um, and if you'd just allow me to, to pray for you. You guys can just stretch your hands out towards Rowan. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your servant, Rowan, my God. Lord, we pray that as he speaks, my God, that um, he would speak what it is that you have laid upon his heart, Lord. Lord, we pray for receptive hearts, my God, and we pray for open ears, my God, to hear what the Lord has said, my God. Lord, I pray for, for Rowan, my God, that he would just um, hold nothing back, my God, and, and just give it to us just like you have said it, my God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I must say, I've never actually used one of these handheld mics. It's either me just without it or it around my face. So quite a time to step up and preach, right? <laughs> you guys all thinking about the, the meeting on Wednesday. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I, I, it's actually quite, I don't know if it's ironic or if it's, if it's, what would be the, because actually a lot of what I have to say, well, some of what I have to say addresses that issue directly, not in terms of gender, so I'm not going to set you up here, Steve, but, but essentially dealing with the law. And what does the law have to say um, to Christians in a modern context? Now that we've got a, a Bible that we know stretches back the Mosaic law to like 3000 BC. And we've got uh, everything from there, from when, you know, I don't know if the wheel was even around in 3000 BC, to now where we're talking about, you know, going to Mars on a spaceship. It's like a massively, massively different time in which we live. And we look at this ancient document, and we say to this ancient document, can you tell us a little bit how it is to live today when you can genetically design your kids? Uh, we can fly to them, you know, to Mars when we have electric cars. Like, how do we do this, right? And I think I'm going to try and address some of that this morning. Um, and it's, very, it's a very complex task. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, not only in preparation for the service, but over many, many years. I've, a lot of the issues that we're talking about today, I really have spent a lot of time um, thinking and reading about. So w where, where are we today? So we're in this, uh, this journey of Exodus, um, and I'm sort of coming up. Is this the last Exodus one? Okay, this is another one. Huh? Okay, so I'm, 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 I'm a lawyer by profession, and, and ironically enough, we're dealing with the law today. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'll sort of get through that with uh, relatively unscathed. All right, so I just want to give you a little bit of background just to where we are, just in chronologically, so you can locate yourself. So we're in Exodus. I'm going to be dealing with Exodus chapter 19 to 24. Um, it, Exodus 1, chapter 1 to 2 really dealt with the growth and the oppression of Israel and Egypt. They grow as a nation and they're enslaved as a nation. Then chapters 3 to 6, uh, call, the call and the commission of Moses. I should need to move this thing because I'm going to knock it with my feet. Okay, and then chapter 7 to 15 is the miraculous deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. So that's the plagues um, and the Red Sea. And then chapters 15 to 18 is Mount Sinai. And so where we're starting to read today is the Israelites are now at the foot of Mount Sinai and, and God is about to make an appearance um, at the... 
I don't have a sort of a three-point sermon, so I more have a, a journey that I want to take you on. So sometimes I'm hoping I can keep you on this journey, and I'm hoping that uh, you won't sort of dwell somewhere else. But I am going to arrive at a place, and, and, and I need you to sort of stay with me until I get to that place. So really what I want to start, there the are three things I want to try and achieve. That's not necessarily the points. The first one is I just want to look at the structure of the Old Testament covenant and law. Um, and, and, and because this was the Bible that Jesus read, right? Like he would have known about these scriptures. So that's the first thing I want to look at that briefly. I want to consider its relevance to us in light of the New Testament and the New Covenant. We can't look at the Old Testament and not understand what its relevance is now that we have this new covenant under which we live. And then I want to finish off by looking at the freedom that we have from law in the New Covenant and how it applies to issues that we have to deal with in modern society. Okay, so that's the sort of the, the sweeping story that I, would, that I would like to try and address this morning. Okay, so let's start by reading. And I am going to refer to a lot of scripture. Um, so uh, if you have phones, it's possibly easier to navigate. I will give you a few moments to get there because I think it's good that you read the scripture as well. You don't just hear it. Um, and yeah, so there's going to be a lot of reference to scripture. Some I won't even read, but I'll just reference it and then you can, um, that you can go look at it. Okay, so we're going to start in Exodus chapter 19. So this is... Um, Really, the Israelites arriving at, at Sinai. Um, we're going to start with verse 1. So if you can get there. All right, so verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set up from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel and camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, so that's just, guys, it's a remembering. A lot of the time you'll see in the Old Testament, you know, it's always just about remembering. Remember what God has done for you. Remember the power that God has displayed to you. God's reminding them again, I brought you here. Okay, so now he's going to tell them about the purpose for which he brought them. Now, if you obey me, note the if, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you'll be my treasure possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So here we see God now revealing the purpose for which he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. They are his treasure possession. So he says, the whole earth is mine, but you are my treasure possession. You are the one that I covered. You are the one that I have chosen. So treasure possession, kingdom of priests, this whole idea that they are all priests before God. Now we have the priestly hierarchy that you're going to learn about later. Um, well, you can read about in Leviticus, etc. But we, they are kingdom of priests before God. They all have access to God and they're living holy in service of God, of the one true God. And then he talks about this idea that they're a holy nation, that they are the set-apart ones from the pagan religions and practices of the day. So here we have his purpose. This is what he's doing with these people. And the, the important thing to note, though, is this if-then clause that appears in, in, uh, in verse 5. And you see that throughout the, tes- uh, throughout the Old Testament. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do that, then that will happen. If you obey me, he says... Um, in verse 5, uh, if you obey me, then you will uh, and keep my coming. Then out of all the nations, you will be treasured. So there's this conditional clause 
And that's in law all the time. You have it in contracts. You have it in, in, in the Constitution. This conditional clause that if you are obedient, you will see these things flow. And you see that in the curses and blessings of the Old Testament. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do that, you'll be cursed. Okay, so that is what this covenant story is all about. It's not just this, it's this, it's this partnership that happens between Israel and God, where he's seeking their obedience so that these blessings um, will flow. So this is the beginning of something called a theocracy, actually. And that's different to what was called a democracy, right? So we live in a democracy, and a democracy is basically the ultimate power of government exists in the hands of the people, which we actually get to exercise tomorrow. So I'm really hoping that every one of you are exercising your right to vote, because this is what many people died and fought for, for this, this ability to actually go and say to government and hold them accountable for what they do or don't do. It's the, it's the power in the hands of the people. And democracy over the years has lost its, its ability in that people have become so disillusioned with it. But it actually is ours. And it's actually the ultimate way in which we hold people accountable. And the word democracy is from the word demos, which is basically was, for, it was the common people of the old Greek villages. So we are the common people. And krasi means rule. So it's the rule of the common people. We are the common people. We get to rule. And this is the importance of, um, of tomorrow. But a theocracy means the rule of God. Theos, God, Crassy, he rules. He is the guy who makes all the decisions. So if we had to try and sort of put it in a democratic sort of setting, not that a democratic setting, but in a, in a setting that we understand, God is the president, all right? He's the ruler. He's the king. All those types of, of uh, images and uh, descriptions are what God is. He's the president, um, and unlike a democracy, there's no parliament that makes the laws, right? In our country, we have a parliament, and that parliament makes law, and that law is voted on, and those who have the majority, because the common people have put there, will change that law. We have courts, and those courts interpret the law, right? And they, in our country, they interpret it in terms of the constitution. So we have a constitution that overrides everything, and all laws are interpreted in terms of that constitution, and all laws are made by what's called the legislature. That didn't exist, in the Old Testament. God did all of those things, all right? He set the Constitution, which was essentially what we're going to read now. This is the beginnings of the Constitution. The, the Ten Commandments are the Constitution of God, and everything else flows from that. But he was also the judge and the jury, right? There wasn't necessarily a court that was set up and said, okay, cool, now he did all the interpretation. That's why the laws in the Old Testament are so right? so detailed, because he's actually setting out um, the interpretation of those laws. All right. And Moses is like the prime minister. Okay. So he's the guy that l basically listens to God, communicates to the people, and then he leads them in obedience. Okay. We see in Old Testament goes frightfully wrong throughout the Old Testament of the Israelites, but he leads them in obedience to that law. That's his job. But he's not the president, he must make the law. Okay. Um, we start to see a little bit of a change in the book of Samuel where the Israelites start to say, no, we want a king like all the other nations. Okay, and that's when you get King Saul for the first time. But still there's this theocratic rule, this divine rule that applies because God is also able to sort of go, no, he goes to the prophets and he says, listen, this guy's not doing his job. Get rid of him. Okay, so he actually will send him prophets, almost sort of like the lynchman will come in there and say, okay, listen, your time's up. God has said, and you move. There's no vote that takes place. Okay. All right, so here we are. The Old, the Old Testament covenant is the constitution, and Israel will be in and around Sinai throughout Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, uh, sorry, throughout Num Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, halfway through Numbers. It's a long time as God unpacks the laws uh, for the people. Okay, so let's read a little bit of that. Let's go to Exodus uh, chapter 20, which is the next 
which is where we start to see uh, the constitution of God um, being set out for the Israelites. Okay, so Exodus chapter uh, 20, verse 1. And God spoke all of these words. Okay, so I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I mean, the entire, well, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm not going to read all the, I'm just going to go, but I'll show you where I'm going. Okay, so he said, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, so he's establishing again his credentials. All right, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so that's the set of partners. All right, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Okay, so I want to just stop here for a moment. And this is a very interesting point for me. So Gray spoke about the cricket. So I don't know if you've been following the, the controversy around the anti-racism statements that uh, our cricketers have and have not been making. But for those of you, I mean, you'll see it throughout football and, and in, 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 in the world because football is the most diverse sport. Um, but basically, it's this idea of taking the knee in, in an anti-racism statement. And South Africa, given its complicated past, sort of fumbles the ball <laughs> when it comes to this stuff. And so what they did is they left it to the cricketers to sort it out for themselves, which wasn't a very smart idea. And then gave them, you know, the idea that they'll sort it out. Um, and, of course, they didn't. So we went to the first cricket game. And there, these oaks, half of them, hands behind the back, half the oaks, this and other oaks. And so cricket started like, going, no ways. We're not doing this anymore. We are now going to be united against racism. And they, um, they sort of said to the guys, look, you've got to take the knee. Unfortunately, their timing was a little bit off. They did it on the bus <laughs> on the way to the cricket game, right? So Quinton de Kock freaks out, okay, and he says, I can't play. All right, and he doesn't necessarily tell us at that point why he can't do it. And there's massive controversy. Poor Tender, Temba Bavuma, instead of him having to talk about cricket, is now having to talk about politics. And it just went south in a big, big way. But Cricket South Africa took, in my mind, the right decision. Okay, this whole idea that if you represent your country, you've got to stand for what the country stands for. But I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is one of the reasons that has been given by sportsmen for not taking the knee is they only take the knee. They only bow to God. All right? Which is very interesting to me because it's this literal interpretation of this type of text. The Old Testament was the Old Testament law is very much about the physical, very much about the ritual, right? The ritual, the outwardness of what is going on is very important. So it's this Old Testament interpretation of bowing the knee as if it's you know kicking dirt or spitting in God's face. But the New Testament looks at the heart. The New Testament says what's in your heart, right? So whether you're standing or kneeling, God knows whether you're for or against racism. But it's this very interesting holding on to the Old Testament that has led to a whole bunch of Christians going, no, I can't take the knee because I only take the knee to God. And God's going, dude, that's not really the point, okay? I know where your heart is. If your heart is aligned to me, you can take the knee, you can lie on your face. It doesn't matter because I know where your heart is. Okay, so it's a very, very important thing to, and we're going to get into this more about what does the New Testament do that's different from the Old Testament. How do we live that out? And how you live that out is you take the knee. And you know that it's not about showing allegiance to something else. It's not allowed allegiance to Black Lives Matter or anything like that. It's allegiance to God, but it's saying we stand against racism. Okay, so we go on. Uh, verse 7. You shall not use, misuse the name of the Lord your God. Uh, that's basically take the, names, the Lord's name in vain, which is also a very interesting thing, right? I mean, how many of us go, Jesus Christ, when the guy hits a six? Okay, interesting, right? So what, what does this actually mean now? In this, I mean, are we going to start checking each other here? Okay, I'm just raising these issues as we go because I, I want you more and more to think about how does this actually apply in your life, all right? What is actually going on when you utter things like that, you know? And I don't necessarily have the answer, then I'm going to get to that a little bit later about how do we answer these questions. 
Okay, the next one, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. All right, do we take a day of rest? And what does that day of rest actually look like? Because in, the, in extreme Judaism, you can't even switch on the lights. Okay, you can't switch on the light switch. If you switch on the light switch, it means electricity. It means there's someone who's working at a power station. Keep electricity on. Don't switch the light on. So how far do we take this day of rest? What does it actually mean? Can you see how more and more we start thinking about this? It's not as simple as we make it out to be, right? It is complicated. And that's what I want to keep in your mind. And that's why I want to show, I think, where the New Testament takes us. Okay, uh, then verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Okay, now we're, I'm pretty certain we all guilty of this. I said to my son the other day, I said, one day you're going to have daddy issues. He said, what do you mean? I said, one day you're going to realize I'm not a great father. He said, I know that already. <laughs> okay. Honor your mother and father. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony against your neighbor. You should not covet your neighbor's house. Okay, we, uh, we, we all covered our neighbor's house. That's what Facebook has done, right? And Instagram has done. Oh, my word. I wish I had a car like that, right? I mean, Instagram has walked us right down that road. Okay, so the, the, the important, a couple of important points I want to talk to you about. The primacy of the Ten Commandments. God speaks them directly to the people. It's not through Moses. Okay, in verse 19, this is what the people of Israel say. They say, the people said to Moses, speak to us yourself, because they just heard God talk to the Ten Commandments. Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not, <laughs> do not have God speak to us, or we'll die. And the reason why they're so scared is because in, in, in Exodus 19, you will see that God basically tells the oaks, look, don't come near the mountain because I'm going to take you out. And, and what he's doing there is he's not, he's not this arbitrary, capricious God. What he's saying is, you don't understand the distance between my holiness and you. Like, we can't be in the same space together, right? My son sat on the couch the day, his feet stink. I'm like, dude, you can't be on the same couch as me. Okay, you've got to move on, all right? So, I mean, it's that sort of like massive distance that God is putting himself between himself, right? But now the Israelites realize this and they say, listen, we don't want to speak to him. We actually like rather you speak. Okay, so, but God has spoken, the constitution, this is it. This is the cornerstone of our civilization. And I mean, obviously, it's obvious to you that much of uh, law, especially in, I mean, Western law, but even in Eastern nations, comes from this document. Okay, and then what we do is we, um, oh yeah, and what's, sorry, what it does is it deals with uh, the, the vertical and the horizontal. So the, the, the Ten Commands deals with our relationship with God and then deals with relationship with each other. And then Jesus, in chapter Matthew 2, 20, uh, 22, verse 37, he sums up the law when he says, and you all know this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then the second one is love the neighbor as yourself. So God is taking that vertical and horizontal and pulling it together. I'm Jesus, sorry, he's pulling it together in one powerful, powerful statement that is actually the lens of the Old Testament. It's actually the way in which we look forward and backwards is this very, very powerful um, thing. All right. And then, okay, so that's what we've got. Jesus wrapped this thing up. He's saying he's validating the Ten Commandments, but he's putting them in a way that basically says through everything, these are the two things, love your Lord, your God, greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Now those two words, if there's ever two or three words that have caused controversy in the world, this is it. What does it mean to love your God? right? What does it mean to love your neighbor? It's a thing that we struggle with all the time, okay? All right, and then what happens with chapter 21 to 24 is it really gives the specifics as to what the, the, the Ten Commandments mean in practice, okay? So it's this, again, it's this covenant. It's this conditional promises made to humanity by God, the if-then stuff. And, and you'll see that in the Ten Commandments, it talks about God says, um, let me just find it here quickly. He talks about, uh, yeah, he says, he says um, in verse 4, he says, For I am the Lord your God, and I am jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. It's pretty powerful stuff. Uh, but showing love to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. You can see the conditionality in there. If you keep my commandments, okay, um, 
I will show love to you over a thousand generations. If you don't keep my commands, it's almost like you're hating me. Now, what's interesting there again, if you read it, is God actually dishing out hate here? You know, is he actually getting this oak? He hasn't listened to me. I'm going to smite him. Actually, it's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there's an inherent goodness in the laws of God. There's an inherent goodness in the Bible. If you're a non-Christian and you follow the precepts of the Bible, you will have a prosperous life. Not prosperous necessarily in terms of wealth. You have a prosperous life. You have a blessed life. You'll have a good marriage. The, 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 the laws of God are not just for Christians. They're for all people. Anyone can follow them. The difference is, of course, whether you have the relationship with Christ or not, but everyone can follow them. But if you don't, if you steal, murder, etc., etc., of course you're going to have curse to your family. Okay, of course you're going to have generational issues, and you see that in, in things like drugs and alcohol. If you, the kids of alcoholics are often alcoholics themselves, it takes that child to stand up and say, "I'm not. I'm going to break that generational curse." Right. So this is what it's referring to. It's for everybody. Okay, so the things that the, that the, that chapters 21 to 23 deal with and really rolling out what the Ten Commandments mean are things like, well, various aspects of societal living. In the context of that time, I want you to remember, in the context of that time, because I'm going to come back to this um, in a moment, okay? So it deals with the treatment of slaves. And this is right at the very beginning. Why? Because it stands in contrast to the way in which they were treated as slaves in Egypt. But note, slavery is still here, which is very interesting to me. So what happened to this about God loves all people, but there's slavery here. Okay, so we already start to go, what does that look like in a moment? I'm going to come back to that, all right? Compensations and penalties for injuries. So you start to see where our modern law starts to get some of its stuff around, okay? Property law, rape, fairness in dealing with others, worship, etc., etc. Okay, so God is dealing with a particular people. Who are they? They are freed slaves who are now becoming a new nation. That's at a particular time. They're establishing a new way of living. Constitution, a governing sect, a governing system, etc. So it's a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. God is setting them aside because ultimately He wants the nation of Israel, His purpose, to go out and that all the other nations will come to know Him. That is the purpose, right? So a particular time, a particular people, particular time, particular purpose. All right. Um, and the laws of that time are very contextual, right? They exist. There's patriarchy. Patriarchy exists in the, in the Old Testament, okay? Men are primary, women are not. It exists. There's slavery. It exists. There's conquest, all right? There's colonialism happening in the Old Testament. People are taking over other nations, all right? There's paganism. And, and some of the pagan cults and practices were horrific. Child sacrifice, all right? There's xenophobia, all right? The hate of the foreigner. Um, there's lack of food security, all right? And you have all the food laws. Okay, so it's, can you start to see what's going on here, this context? And the question you've got to ask yourself, so what does this mean for us today? How does God relate to us today, okay, when we've got massive issues with patriarchy? We've got massive issues with xenophobia. We've got massive issues with modern-day slavery, all right? How are we dealing with these things from um, a, a biblical and, and church point of view? And then what he does is he, he concludes that chapter 24 with a, with a promise of divine guidance, um, and the eventual conquest of Canaan, where this new nation is going to be set up. But it's all dependent upon their obedience to the covenant. And that's the whole thing about covenant. It's that if then, it's that conditional stuff. All right? Okay, so here we go. So the question is, how much of the Old Testament law is applicable to us today? How much of all that stuff that is so contextual, this particular time, particular place, particular purpose, how much of that is relevant to us today? Okay, so the, the word testament is just another word for covenant. So New Testament, New Covenant, that's basically where we're at. 
And the Old Testament represents God's previous covenant with Israel, particular time, particular place, particular purpose, right? And therefore, the Old Testament is basically no longer automatically binding on us. No more automatic. We don't just take automatically what it says in the Old Testament is binding us today because we live under a new covenant, a new law, which is basically ushered in by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? The new covenant is expressed in Matthew 22, 23, 7. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is, the, 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 in a sense, the lens of the new covenant. So unless the Old Testament law is somehow restated or reinforced in the New Testament, it is no longer binding on us. It doesn't hold us to the obligations that the nation of Israel was held to in the Old Testament. All right? So let, let me just talk about what those law. They're, they're, they're basically three broad types of law. The first one is the ceremonial or ritual law, which related to the way in which Israel worshipped. Um, and its primary purpose was to point forward to Christ. Now, they wouldn't have known at that particular time, but as the New Testament comes in, so we start to see that much of the worship and much of what was going on was about this foreknowing or this foreprophesying of, of a Savior. Okay? Um, and it's specifically around the idea of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, and that's why we have this whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, because it's through the shedding of blood that sins are forgiven. But if you think about it really, I mean, shedding the blood of a goat... Does it really forgive your sins? Okay, so it's very much not actually forgiving sins. It's pointing forward to the time when real forgiveness of sins, both backwards and forwards, takes place through the real shedding of the blood of God himself, in a sense, through Jesus Christ. Okay? So, while the ceremonial law no longer binds us, the principles behind them, the worship and the, of a holy God, are very much still in application today. And when you read the, 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 the ceremonial and the ritual stuff, you'll see the beauty and the commitment and the dedication. And, the, and that's still what God wants of us today, right? The, the, the commitment to him, the dedication, the, 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 the I don't know, almost like you can imagine the dancing and the, well, that's quite interesting. Are we allowed dancing? I'm going to come to that in a moment, right? So all that sort of stuff that we see in the Old Testament, God, but it's principle, right? It's not actually you have to do this, this, and this. Um, to be able to worship God. And what's very interesting is the Pharisees, when they got into fights with Jesus, it was actually around the ceremonial law because he, he was pretty much like, yeah, it doesn't really matter anymore because I'm going to fulfill all of it, right? So it's the same thing, right? If, if I was preaching in short pants and you're fighting with me, then you're fighting around the ceremony, the ceremonial. But he has an interesting point. So I used to do a lot of work in the Eastern Cape, in churches in the Eastern Cape. And when I preach, and I preach in situations just like this, you preach in a suit and a tie and pants, baby. Why? Because the people there will see you as a boy, not as a man. And if you're a boy in a patriarchal society, you have no authority. Now, that's ceremonial. It's ritual, right? But it's contextual. So here I was in my tie and my suit preaching. That's how it worked. Okay. Then the second type of law is a civil law. That applied to daily living in ancient Israel and specifically around the penalties for various crimes. Um, but the reality is we are not uh, citizens of Israel. We live in a democracy, as I've just stated. Um, and we live in a democracy in a secular state, not a divine state, not a religious state. This is not a religious state. Okay? Um, and, uh, and, I, and, and it's very important that you understand that because sometimes what I see within Christian circles is this idea that we must legislate Christian morality in the laws of our country. And, and, and we're not a theocracy. We are a democracy. 
And that in itself is very alienating, right? If we start legislating what we believe as Christians and saying everybody else must obey those laws, you can imagine what that does to the breakdown of the gospel, right? Like people are going, gee, these Christians are just making us do stuff that we don't want to do. Who's this God that's so capricious and so, you know what I'm saying? So we have to understand that, yes, we can, from a rational point of view, present arguments in law that reflect the Bible, but we cannot go because God says so. It's got to be rational. Okay, so let me, let me give you an example. It's quite a controversial law, but let's talk about abortion for a second. Okay, so my, and this is my view, and I don't actually know <laughs> where the church down, but I believe that abortion is wrong. Okay, and I, I believe that life and con- uh, happens at uh, conception. All right, but for me to say that in a legend, like I believe in God and I believe that life starts conception, it's like, well, dude, we don't. We believe life starts, and the law actually says that in South Africa, life, the, 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 the fetus is only protected once it's been birthed, right? So the question becomes then, how do we, if we wanted to bring that law into legislation, how do we go about that? Well, we've got to go about the same way you do any other law. You've got to bring rational argument to the table. You've got to show that the life in the womb is the same as life outside the womb, and therefore it is alive. You understand what I'm saying to you? You can't just go, well, because God believes, uh, because I believe in God and because the Bible says so. It's not a theocracy. You understand what I'm saying? So we've got to be very careful, and that's a very controversial one, and I'm sure one of two of you are probably jumping your seats. That's fine. I don't mind. Um, but, but, but what I'm saying is, do you see, you see the point I'm making? Okay, we live in a secular, not a religious state. It's a democracy, not a theocracy. Okay, um, and just this whole idea of the, 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 the authority of the government. Uh, in Matthew 22, when it, that same... Um, uh, yeah, Matthew 22, verse 21, when Jesus acknowledges Caesar's place in this world, where he says to his, um, where he says to his followers, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. All right? So he's acknowledging the role that government plays. And then in Romans 13, 1, verse uh, 1 to 2, uh, Paul says, obey the government, for the God is the one who has put it there. So those who refuse to obey the law of the land are refusing to obey God, and punishment will follow, right? And that's why you end up in jail. You don't obey the laws of the land, well, you go to jail. That's the way it works. Okay, it's not saying we, we, we don't oppose unjust and evil governments. It's not saying that, right? It's basically saying that the government that is properly in place. So that's why we, you know, people stood up against apartheid because it was an evil and unjust system. Um, but go, and it's also a very complicated issue. And again, this we'll get to it a little bit later. This stuff is not that simple. But the reality is God has put, as much as you may not like the present government, that present government is put there by God. That's what it says there. It says there. I'm allowing this to happen. So we've, if you want to work the president government out, you've got to work it out the way in which the system allows, which is through a democracy. That's why you need to go vote. Okay, so that's the, um, that's the civil law. And then we get the moral ethical law, which is really the, 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 the Ten Commandments and, and the things that flow from that. Okay? And these laws are, uh, continue to apply to us to the degree, and the degree to which they are reaffirmed in the New Testament Okay, so there's a lot of what's in the Old Testament moral law that's restated in the New Testament um, and basically supports those two basic laws of love the Lord your God with all your heart and love the neighbor as yourself. Okay, so that's really how it's all sort of summed up. Um, and in, and uh, love the Lord your God is, is this restatement of Deuteronomy 6.5. So it's really about Jesus acknowledging the, the, that moral law, that constitution that exists. And then love the neighbor as yourself is Leviticus 19.18. So those things, Jesus bringing those things from the past into the present. And then he says, and after that, that verse in Matthew, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, for this is the greatest commandment, and love your neighbor yourself. He says this in verse 40. He says, 
all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets hang. So that's Jesus going, this is it, guys. It's these two things. It's these two things. So this is a statement that I'm going to say a couple of times, so you maybe want to, want to write it down. So while the Old Testament law is no longer the command of God to us, it is still the word of God for us. Okay, it's no longer the command of God to us, but it is still the word of God for us. In that it does a couple of things. One is it reveals the nature and the character of God. It reveals who God is throughout. He's a God of love. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. He's also a God that you don't mess with. Okay, so it reveals his character. And again, we've got to work that out in, in our time and through the Old Testament. It also helps us to locate ourselves in the story of the Bible. All right, so imagine if we just got a book that had a whole bunch of laws. How do we locate ourselves? How do we understand ourselves in relationship to God, in relationship to history, in relationship to the sort of golden thread of salvation? So what it, the Old Testament does is allows us to locate ourselves in the story of God, but also allows us to see how God worked with ordinary people at, you know, and how he worked through them and how they were responding to him. And we can go, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit like that person, but look at the grace and the love that God showed to that person, etc., etc. So it allows us to locate ourselves. It also shows the power of God to achieve his purposes. Um, and I think I, I, when, when Steve was preaching um, last week, I, I, I just read something a week before. I sent it to Steve, but he never replies to my WhatsApp. So, um, but, but basically, it, this guy was saying that um, actually the, the future of Christianity is, is going to belong to the mystics. It's going to belong to the people who experience God. Because eventually what happens is the apologetics and the, the powerful arguments we have are always going to be matched by another powerful argument, right? And you're just going to have this toing and froing and this batting of heads. And actually what it's going to come down to is do you have a, an experience of God? Do you experience God in a very deep way? Because that's going to be the thing that triggers. And so we need the power of God more than anything any time in our history, because the arguments today are so powerful. And part of the reason it's powerful is because we've got science involved now. We've got massive, you know, we've got thousands of years of philosophy that are coming into the picture. So we need the power of God. And the, the, Holy, the, the Old Testament reminds us that the power of God is here. Now, how we access that, okay, that's, that's Steve's job. He can tell you about that. Okay, let me just have a what if. Okay, so let's deal with the problem of the Old Covenant, okay? One of the questions that popped in my head is, well, so, like, why didn't God just send Jesus from the beginning when you sell all this nonsense? You know, just like, say, guys, listen. Sorry, man. I'm just telling you right from the beginning. It's not going to work. You're actually not going to be able to do this on yourself. So I'm just going to send Jesus and we get it sorted from the beginning. Okay, so let's read. Uh, you may want to turn here, Hebrews 8, verse 7. Okay, so we're jumping into the New Testament now. Okay, so verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no, no place would have been sought for another. Okay, so, okay, wow, that's pretty interesting. Is nothing wrong with the first covenant? But God found fault with these people. Ah, here we go, if then. If then. Okay, if you do this, then this will happen. But, you know, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the old covenant I made with the ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. Because they don't remain. See, gone from the Old Testament right in the beginning. Ten commandments, if you do this, then it will happen. Now we're in Hebrews. 
Same thing, all right? We're starting to figure out that this old covenant didn't really work. Okay, now that's important because I also thought about Jesus. You know, what's the purpose of it then? Like, if it didn't really work, well, the law in itself was never actually designed to save us. It was never actually designed. It wasn't about this fact that if you could keep all the nice little laws, that suddenly you have this righteousness with God, you have the salvation of God. What it actually was, its purpose, and that's what I was saying to you, was to reflect like a mirror. It was, lo- it was, a, it was a, a means to let you see, you and I see, what we really are like. What we really are like. All right? So it's this idea that if I look in a mirror and I need a shave, the mirror tells me I need a shave, but the mirror can't do the shaving for me. Someone or me have got to do the shaving. It acts like a mirror. Okay? The law was only a diagnostic tool to show us and you what was wrong, but had no power or ability to fix the problem. It's like an x-ray, right? You go to an x-ray, you can see the problem, but the x-ray machine, the x-ray radiologist doesn't have the power to fix it. They can just tell you what the problem is. The law in itself does not and cannot give us any power or ability to overcome the problem of sin. It simply shows us how far we are from God. It's starting to prove the point. Now you can start to see why the Old Testament, why God started where he started. Is he needed, we, we needed as a, as, as, as a people, as human beings, to understand how holy God is and how difficult it is to meet his standards of righteousness. And so he takes us on this journey. And at a particular time, at a particular place, he then brings his son um, into the picture. Okay, so. Yeah, and then the other thing is the law, by us trying to follow the law, we've, we've started to realize how powerless we are, and they actually need help. Okay, like, you come to that point, I can't do this anymore. Um, and so the law then starts to inevitably point us towards this need for a savior, towards someone who's going to come and enable the fulfillment of the law and give us the righteousness that we lack because we are unable to fulfill uh, the law. And, and, um, and then the other thing that the, the law does, which I thought was pretty cool, is it shows us that it, it, because of our inability to fulfill the law, and because Jesus fulfills the law, and I'll get that in a moment, he is worthy of our worship. So it gives us a reason. My word, this guy comes along and wraps up all of history and fulfills all the law. He is worthy of me following him. He's worthy of my worship. So that's what the law does. shows us how much we sin, how we can't actually. It shows us how helpless we are in the attempt to figure it out, and it shows us why Jesus is worthy uh, to be worshipped. So Galatians 3.24 says this. So the law... This is Paul. The law became our guardian to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And the interesting, the word guardian is actually the word for pedagogue. And pedagogue means to teach. Okay. And you have pedagogy, which is the science of teaching. All right. And especially in an academic setting. So there's our ultimate pedagogue, our professor of theology or our professor of economics, the ultimate pedagogues, right? In that academic setting. Um, and, and, uh, and then in Romans uh, Romans 10, verse 4, it says that Christ is the culmination of the law, okay? The end, the conclusion of, culmination means the end, the conclusion of, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So you can see this shift is happening now. It's happening from Jesus has wrapped this thing up, and it's moving to this thing called justification by faith or righteousness in all who believe. So the basis of this new covenant is not obedience to law. That's not the basis of the new covenant, Okay. It's about faith in Jesus. It's about faith in his person. He is the son of God. 
and it's about faith in his work, that his death on the cross through the shedding of blood, now we're moving away from the goat that actually doesn't have any power, but it's just symbolic of what was to come. Now we have the shedding of blood that actually has power. This is the blood of the divine himself that has been shed for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, now we start to see why wow, there's real power. There's, there's something happening here that wasn't happening in the Old Testament um, is happening now. In fact, this new covenant is so radical, it contrasts obedience to the law with freedom from the law. We've moved from obedience to the law to freedom from the law, okay? Um, Galatians 5.11 said, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And that was slavery to the law. Stand firm in your freedom, he says. Now, the context of this verse is very interesting. It's actually in the context of circumcision. So we work in circumcision in terms of the Old Testament law. So you now read further in verse 2. It says, this is Paul again, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, in other words, if you obey the law, of the Old Testament, Christ will be no value to you at all. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienating from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So what was happening here is the Jewish Christians, they were called Judaizers, Judaizers, were trying to convince the Gentile Christians that in order to be in right standing with God, you needed to be circumcised. That was the basis. And that's called legalism. So they were trying to impose this legalistic practice on what had already been established by Christ, that faith in Christ is all that you need, is what brings you righteousness. And that's why he keeps on saying, you've fallen away from grace. He was, he's saying that Christ is of no value to you. Christ is of no value to you, or is of no value if you feel that on top of the crucifixion and the death and resurrection of Christ, you have to add all these laws then Christ has no value to you. Then you must go and live by the law, he says. That's what he's saying. If you want to live by that law, then go live that law. But remember, Christ has no value to you. And that's this whole idea of adding things on to the, the death and resurrection. Now we've got a death and resurrection and A, B, C, and D. And we've got to preach in, you know, long pants and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which I'm going to get to. It's an interesting question, right? Okay, so today's context. This is what I want to get to. Sometimes when we face with difficult issues, and I'm going to name them, some of them, race, gender, sexuality, culture, politics, leadership, environment, we tend to want to default back to the comfort of the law because it's black and white. It's easy. It's quick. We just got to call it, and then we can move on. And that's the problem with the law, and that's the problem with humanity is because we like equilibrium and stability, right? We don't like the, 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 the disequilibrium that comes with difficult conversations, with conflict, with tension. Let's just, oh, can't we have the law again? But we saw what happened in the Old Testament when we had the law. We saw what happened. It didn't work, and we saw the division and the disobedience. It didn't work, but we like it because it gives us clarity. It gives us boundaries, and we don't like the disequilibrium that, um, that comes with it. We also like the fact that it's a one-size-that-fits-all answer, right? It just takes care of everything, really? Does it really take care of everything uh, in this very diverse society that we live in with all our backgrounds? We, like, we, we have to be ready to go on the journey to discover the truth. We have to be ready to go on the journey to discover the right thing to do. Because what we do is when we, we default into this black-and-white existence, we have this false idea that the issue is resolved. It's never resolved always comes back. The cricket is an exact uh, 
example of that. It wasn't, the deep conversations weren't held, the tension wasn't held, and so what happened is, we had that uh, in that situation of a couple of weeks ago. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. This whole idea of fear and trembling, it's not, not something to, working out our salvation, working this whole idea of sanctification is becoming more like Christ, becoming more like God. It's not a black and white issue. It's not a comfortable issue. It's not an easy issue. It's this whole idea that it mustn't, the fear and trembling, it mustn't be taken lightly or entertained in glib fashion. This is a serious endeavor, and we've got to seriously take it on. But the problem is that legalism leaves context behind. Legalism doesn't look at the nuance, doesn't understand the undercurrents of what's going on in societies. So yes, there are universal biblical principles that apply for all times, and I've spoken a little about them. But some rules and solutions um, that we create are stuck in time where God was speaking to a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. And we've got to understand that God is speaking to us at a different time. So let me just give you an example quickly, two quick examples. Slavery. In the New Testament, Paul never actually says that slavery is wrong. don't know if you know that. Okay, which actually seems crazy to us standing in this modern-day context, knowing what slavery did, right? And he just, basically what he does is quite interesting, is he just says, he, just, he tries to encourage this guy, Philemon, where his slave has run away, to better treat his slave. But he doesn't actually come up against it, okay? And, and, it, and, and uh, the, the theologian John Stott said that some of the possible answers to why he hadn't done that, now note the context, that Christians had no power to overthrow slavery. In fact, they were persecuted themselves. And the other one, he says, that slavery was an unfortunate, but listen to this, this is quite staggering, but integral part of Roman society. In most cities, there were many times more slaves than free people. Okay? It would therefore have been impossible to abolish slavery at a single stroke without completely disintegrating the society. So, like, did Paul believe that slavery was okay? I would like to think he didn't, but he understood the context, and he understood what he was dealing with at that particular time, and he chose a particular route that possibly began the undermining of slavery, but it didn't abolish it. He didn't just sort it out, okay? And this is the, what we've got to understand about the way God, God deals with us in our context. He deals with us where we find ourselves in history. Solomon had a harem. How many, how many prostitutes did he have? thousand, wasn't it? God used him. David was a murderer and an adulterer. God used him. Now, that's not liberty for everyone. You're like, oh, come, sorry, I'm coming up tomorrow, baby. Because our context is like, no ways. We, know, we, we, we stand on this side of the cross. We stand on this side of the Bible. We don't have those excuses. I'm not saying they're excuses. All right? He has another one. 1 Corinthians 14.34. Yeah, we're going to wade into deep water. Women are, not, are to be silent in churches. They are not permitted to speak. <laughs> but must be in submission, as the law says. If they wish to inquire about something, they are to ask their own husbands at home. For it is it's honorable for women to speak in church. Okay, so this is what's so interesting about what I spoke to. This, the, so what, the, you know, Steve alluded to this uh, meeting we have on Wednesday. So when this whole thing um, came to light, my wife did exactly what I've been imploring you to do, to work your faith out in fear and trembling. Because it's easy to get a nice black and white answer, right? 
you either for it or against it. And so what she did is she worked her sanctification out for you. And trembling. I've, I've possibly never seen her this committed to figuring out what the Bible has said. She's reading stuff. She's watching YouTube videos. I had to order books from Amazon that are not in South Africa any longer. All right? And this is what she taught me about that verse, which I didn't know about, which explains why Paul possibly was saying what he was saying. Because if we start applying this, it's goodbye all the ladies that are preaching. Yeah, Grace, you can stand down. Thanks very much. You know, it's not going to happen. Okay? And this is what, what most religions barred women from being part of the religion, except for the mystery cults okay, that allowed them to be part. And most women were basically relegated to stay at home. But the mystery cults allowed women to be part of this. And the woman took part in these mystery cults like there was no tomorrow, okay? Now, there was a secret cult called the cult of Dionysus, which uh, the female worshippers were called the mad ones. And they actually worshipped madness as part of that cult, and now here's a cool one. I'm very, I'm very worried when my wife says to me she wants to go to the mountains. Because what they used to do is they would spend several days in the mountain dancing, drinking, and engaging in sexual immorality. Okay, that was the part of the cult. And it was all part of, and that particular time in Corinth, they had the, the goddess of Aphrodite, which was the goddess of, of, of sex. So it was very much part of the culture. So what Paul does is he comes into the culture. What is he trying to do? He's trying to establish order in worship. Now these Gentile Christians are coming in. Many of them are women. All right? They have... And can you imagine the worship? Now they're basically engaging in worship, but they're bringing their pagan worship into, and it's becoming totally disruptive. All right? And the second thing is women were totally, there were no educated women in those times. So no wonder they were asking so many inappropriate questions. Can you imagine if I was talking and Justine and they're freaking like, okay, ladies, calm down. Okay? Do you start to see what's happening? Now we look at this and we laugh, but can you imagine? Like, imagine this being applied now, but it's in the New Testament. You see how context is so important. The point is that the new covenant Christ gives us the grace and freedom to live out our, our salvation and work it out in the current times. And we see this in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, To those not having the law, I became one like, I became like one not having the law. All right? So now he's going, well, what do I need to do in this context? Okay? Um, so, the, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel. So many years ago, I was in a conversation with a guy in the Baptist church circles. Drinking and dancing was a big deal. Not allowed to do it. And I, mean, I was at seminary at that particular time, and so I basically come to the conclusion that, you know, the Bible is not clear. On the abuse of alcohol, it's very clear, but, I mean, many of you will drink wine, and you'll have, you, won't send, you won't think twice about it. And dancing was a big deal as well, okay? So I was actually talking to this uh, uh, pastor who was in a community where alcoholism and uh, teenage pregnancy was rife. And I was having this conversation with him, and I didn't know that at a particular time. And, I was, and he said to me, Roan, if the church... If I stood up in the pulpit and I said, there's nothing wrong with dancing and with drinking, I would literally disintegrate my community. I would literally disintegrate my community. I have to, I have to take my context into account and basically say, look, it's not Christian to do this and to do that. And how do we respond to that? We respond to it because the grace of the Bible, the freedom in Christ allows us to deal with our context based on what we are. If you go into context and you call it, in the way in which your context calls it. You're finished. So we're talking about women in leadership. 
in certain, in certain cultures in this world, you cannot go into those cultures and talk about women leadership because you will disintegrate the society. You have to start, like Paul did, dealing with slavery at a bottom level. You've got to start dealing with patriarchy at that level. And over time, through the grace of God and through the Spirit of God, moving in those societies and those cultures, that will change. But in other contexts, it's ludicrous, right? And that's what we have to understand about the freedom that we have in Christ. I genuinely don't believe that we're going to come to a time where Jesus is going to go, right, all those who danced, please stand that side. You were wrong. It's, you know what I'm saying? It's this grace. It's this freedom we have in Christ. Okay, so is this easy? And I know, you, I know I'm going on. I'm now finished. No ways it's not easy. Okay, are the, are, the, are the answers always self-evident and obvious? No, they're not. They're not self-evident and obvious. We have to live in this tension between the law and freedom. In the context of massive diversity, look around you at this church. We come from different cultures. We come from different ages. We come from different family setups. Some of you come from broken homes. Some of you may even come from homes where uh, there, there's homosexuality. So what are we going to do? Are we going to go for our glib, nice, black and white, comfortable, default back answers so we can resolve ourselves and we'll watch cricket? It doesn't work that way. It certainly does not work that way. We have to live in the disequilibrium of, disequilibrium of difficult conversations over complicated issues for long periods of time. We have to be ready to do that. And you know why it's so important? Do you know why it's so important? Because the people out there are asking the same questions and no one is sitting down and talking about them in grace and in love. That is our witness to the world. That is our witness to the world, the ability for them to see a community. And this is what this community represents. This new community represents the opportunity to send a message out to the world. We're not afraid to talk about anything. We're not afraid to embrace anything. We're prepared to go on the long haul, on the long conversation, because that is how God is going to extend His kingdom. He's not going to extend His kingdom through rules and treaties and laws. It's not going to happen. It's going to happen through the grace that is administered to people around these issues and go together in the same direction. So I want to call out to you this morning. We've got to trust the Spirit of God. On Wednesday night, we're going to trust the Spirit of God. It's going to be a difficult time. And we've got to stand back and say, the Spirit of God is here. And we're going to go together in the long direction, in the long conversation. We're going to try not judge, because it's going to be flippant difficult for me to do that, because I'm a lawyer. And we're going to work it out together in fear and trembling. And we err on the side of grace, in the same measure that Christ afforded that to us. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the way in which you have, through the grand sweep of history, showed us what a wonderful God you are and that you genuinely do have the way for us to walk. Give us courage to walk in that way. And by the power of your Spirit, take us to where you need us to go. Amen.